Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. How are you guys? Yeah? Um, I, that, that line of even when I see it, don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Like Something about settling that in our hearts and in our minds of like, even if I don't see something happening, God, like I believe you and, and, and whether I see it or not, like I trust you. And I'm not going to like only live by what I see or what I hear by my senses, but I'm going to live by every word that's proceeding from your mouth. So all I need to know is not what do I see or what do I hear. God, what are you saying? What have you said? I just need a word from you, Lord. I need to know what you've said because you saw this, this situation before it even began and you spoke a word that speaks to this. I just need to find you in this moment and then I can rest and I can settle myself and anchor myself in you and in what you've said and then I can let everything else just go on around me. I'm going to trust you. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm going to get to the message because I feel like that it, there's, there's something on God's heart for us because it's, it's been continually something that's been brought up. And so, um, so I want to talk about that. But I, I feel the obligation to let you know before we start that, that as your pastor, uh, I, I feel the, the, the burden to trailblaze and to, like a good leader, go before you and clear the way. And so I just want to let everyone know that we set up our Christmas tree this week. <laughs> and so you are all now free to set yours up whenever you would like. Uh, yes. Um, I, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Like, I don't want to wait forever to start celebrating it. I love Christmas time. I do. I, I love everything about Christmas. Um, someone was like, someone, Patty posted on Facebook and someone wrote, they were like, come on, Mary hasn't even told Joseph she's pregnant yet. I'm like, but wait a minute, 2,000 years before that, Isaiah prophesied the coming of Jesus. I don't need to wait for Mary to get a word. I got a word from the Lord 2,000 years before that. I'll set up my tree whenever I want. You're not the boss of me. <sighs> Let's pray. <laughs> Listen, here's the truth, though. No, I'm serious. I, <laughs> look at me with that tone. Dude, this, this is serious stuff. Make sure that your kids, I'm not going to go on the, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. Like, we celebrate Jesus every day. And, and if we need a certain time of year or a tradition to remember that, like, the Savior of the world was born, we probably need to, to get back to focusing our lives on Jesus. But make sure that, that your kids realize that Santa is not what God is like. Because a lot of times growing up, my idea of God was more like Santa. He's this wise, all-knowing man with a big beard that's up in the sky who sees everything you do and gives you what you deserved based on what you've done. Like, don't prime your kids for legalism. Make sure they know that, like, God's better than Santa. That he doesn't give you what you deserve based on what you've done. He gives you what Jesus deserved based on what he did because you're in Christ and you've accepted the sacrifice that was made on the cross. 
I'm serious, because I think sometimes if we're not careful, we prime our kids for legalism because we teach them about, you know, the idea of, of being rewarded for what you do and what you don't do, and if you're good, you get this, and if you're bad, you get that, and then along comes legalism and says, God's like that, he's in heaven, and if you're good, he gives you this, and if you're bad, he gives you that, and all of a sudden, we have this idea of God that's based more on a man's idea of what he's like than the idea that he presented in himself when he sent his son to die on a cross before you did the first thing right. While you were yet in sin, while I was yet in sin, he sent his son to die on a cross for us. Um, but the thing, the thing I want to talk about today a little bit is um, discouragement. And I, and I feel like it's something that the Lord has really been after. And I, I, don't, I don't like to be that guy that's like, oh, it's this season or that season. Um, because I feel like, like Zach said, like I, don't, I feel like sometimes if we do that, we give ourselves permission to forget about amazing things as we move from one season to the next, rather than becoming part of who we are and something we take with us for the rest of our lives and build upon from there. Um, but, but I do feel like right now there's something that God wants to deal with in the church, of, of dis, this topic of discouragement and disappointment. Because I, I feel like, honestly, in talking to people, a lot of times more of what we believe or expect is based on disappointment and discouragement than it is the words that have proceeded from God's mouth. Because it, you, we even, like when we hear a promise from the Lord, the first thing that we do if we're not careful is we start to think, yeah, but what about, and we go to a discouragement or a disappointment that invalidates the thing that God himself spoke from his mouth. As if when he spoke it, he didn't realize that was going to happen. Like he needs us to be like, God, I know you said this, but then this happened, so obviously what you said isn't true. But, but we do that if we're not careful. And we let our discouragement or our disappointment dictate how much of the Lord will actually believe and give ourselves permission to have hope for. And I feel like, like, like right now, hope is something that God is wanting to restore to his church. Because without hope, you can't have faith. Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for. In other words, like, like if I don't believe that there's something greater than what I'm seeing, then how can I live by faith? I can't. A lot of times I'm living by faith in what hasn't happened more than what he said would happen. And so I'm letting discouragement and disappointment dictate the way that I believe more than the words that have proceeded from his mouth. And, and so um, I, there's, a, there's a, a, a big reason that happens a lot of times, that, and, and I want to talk about that today. Open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 7. Um, I, I started to preach this message last service. I got to one side note of a side note, and it it, seriously, it was the rest of the service. Um, I'll hopefully get through all of it. If not, it'll be next week, or I'll get to it in third service, and you can watch it on the, on the podcast or on YouTube. Um, but in, in Luke chapter 7, um, in, in verse 22, Jesus is giving an answer to some people that came and asked him a question. And the question that they came and asked him was, John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one, or should we look for another? So John is the one who, in his mother's womb, leaps for joy when, when Mary walks in with Jesus in her womb. Um, he's the one who, when he sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the first human being to declare who Jesus is as the Messiah. You realize, like, the demonic realm knew who Jesus was better than the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day knew who Jesus was. He said to them, he said, you study the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they that point to me. He's saying, here I am standing in front of you, and you're more worried about being right by what you know than actually letting what's right in front of you speak to you. And because your confidence is in your knowledge and understanding, I walk into the room and you let your confidence in your knowledge and understanding keep you from seeing me standing in front of you. 
and you keep searching in there, and that's supposed to lead you to me. That's never supposed to lead us to anything but Jesus. If, if knowing the word leads us to a confidence in knowing the word and not to a confidence in knowing Jesus, who is the word, something is wrong. And so, so John declares who Jesus is. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They come to him and they say, you know, they're baptizing more people than you are. And John says, it's okay. He must increase. I must decrease. He knows who Jesus is. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He proclaims what Jesus is going to do. He's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, according to Jesus. The greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. And yet, he finds himself in prison, and because life doesn't look like what he expected life to look like for a season of his life, he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says, go and ask him if he's even the one. Or should we start looking for somebody else? You have to be pretty discouraged like, I've been discouraged at some times in my life, just being honest. There's been a day or two here or there where I've faced some discouragement, some disappointment, some things not going the way I expected things would go, some things that I didn't understand happening in my life. Hard things sometimes where you look and you go, this is not what I expected from life. I never thought I would end up here. I remember, I remember having that distinct thought when we were in the waiting room of the ICU when Aaliyah was back there in a coma clinging to life and they're saying that she's not going to make it. And I remember like praying, saying, God, I don't, like I come here to comfort people. I'm not the guy in the chair that everybody's coming to see. I'm the one who goes and sees them. Like I never thought I would be here. But in, I can honestly say, and I'm not exalting myself, I'm saying like, I can't even imagine the discouragement and the disappointment that John the Baptist must have felt because even in those times, I never was like, I wonder if you're even real. But John is facing such discouragement and disappointment that he decides maybe he's not the one. Go ask him. And maybe, maybe John was just trying to prompt Jesus and remind Jesus, hey, I'm sitting in prison. You kind of promised you were going to set the captives free. So his disciples come to him and they say that, and this is Jesus' answer. Luke chapter 7, verse 22. He answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The first thing he says is what he's seeing and what he's hearing right now is leading him somewhere he's not supposed to be. I want to change what he's looking at. I want to change what he's listening to. Jesus says, you're in that place of discouragement because of what you're looking at and what you're listening to. So the answer isn't just yes. He doesn't just say, oh, go tell him yes. Why? Because he understands. Simply saying yes isn't going to solve anything because it's not a, a yes or no question. It's, it's actually, a, I'm having a question and a doubt because of what I'm looking at and because of what I'm seeing and because of what I'm hearing. So he says, the first thing he says, you go. And do this to John's head. That's what he says. You take his eyes off of what he's looking at and put them on something else. Close his ears to what he's been hearing and start speaking something different. And look what he says. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. 
he lists everything that he said he was coming to do when he announced himself when he walked into the temple and he, he quoted the book of Isaiah, except for one thing. He leaves off and the captives are set free. Why? Because what he's saying to John is, John, there's one thing that I haven't done yet, and that's what you're focused on. Why don't you stop focusing on that and start focusing on all the things that I have done? Because the focusing and putting all of your hopes and all of your attention and even your system of belief on one thing has caused you to doubt everything. So why don't you stop staring at that? And why don't you stop making that your litmus test for me being who I say that I am? And actually look at everything that I am doing and let that be the thing that you're looking at and that what you're listening to. You, I've been there. Where it's like, well, God, if you're real, like if you ever have that come out of your mouth, if you love me, just stop. Because whatever's coming next is not good. Because what you're saying is, God, I am questioning everything I know about you because of one thing that I don't understand. If you loved me, listen, if you ever get to a place where you're saying, God, if you loved me, you've forgotten the fact that he hung his son on a cross naked and bruised and beaten for your sin and for my sin so that he, we could be reconciled to him. The question of his love for us was settled at the cross. And anytime we give ourselves permission to start saying, well, if you loved me, what we're saying is that wasn't enough. There's this thing that I don't understand and you need to take care of this so that I can start to focus again on that. And discouragement and disappointment come. And suddenly, everything is in question. If you have a cell phone, <laughs> just put it on silent. <laughs> and then you won't work your way into the message. <laughs> um, so, I, I was, so I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, man, like what a difference between John, who literally all this stuff is going on around him, and yet he's focused on the one thing that isn't, and then I was thinking about the Apostle Paul, and I just wanted to kind of compare their lives a little bit because I think one gives us a pretty good example of what it looks like to live in a place where we're not exactly where we thought we would be. We're not even where we want to be. Like, who knows? Like, it's okay to say, like, I don't want to be here right now. Like, I didn't want to be in the ICU waiting room. I didn't want that. I'd be lying if I said, this is right where I want to be. No chance. I never want to be there again. But there's a difference in saying, this is not where I would choose to be, and this is not where I want to be, but this is where I am, so I cannot put my love for you on hold until I'm not here anymore. I can't put the, the believing that you're good on hold until you take me out of this place. I believe you're good in the middle of it, even though my circumstances aren't good, because I'm not ruled simply by what I see and what I hear. I'm ruled by every word that proceeds from your mouth, and you've declared things that are greater than this situation. And so Paul... When he's in prison, two things he wrote. He wrote a bunch of stuff in prison. But listen to these two lines. First to the church at Philippi, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, listen, every time I think of you, I'm filled with joy because I'm focused on and I'm putting my attention on what God is doing in you rather than what he's not doing for me in this moment. He doesn't say like, 
yeah, it's cool, and if, as soon as I get out of here, I'll be joyful because then I can get with them and celebrate. He says, no, I'm filled with joy even being in this prison because my eyes and my attention and my focus is on what God is doing rather than what he hasn't done in this moment. I'm not going to put joy on hold until God does the thing I think he should do. I'm going to live with joy even if he doesn't until I either get to that place or I'm standing before him. But I'm not going ref- to put joy on hold simply because of something I don't understand or a situation that I don't like. I won't give myself permission to do that. Ephesians, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of the, in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So just think about this. On one hand, you have a man who just wants to be out of prison. That's it. He wants to be out of prison. I'm sure he had great reasons. He's probably thinking, I could be out there. I could be doing more for the kingdom. And even if we dress it up the best, he wants to be out of prison. And he's so frustrated and disappointed with the fact that this Jesus, who came to do this thing, and it's a true promise God made. He said he came to set the captives free. Like, sometimes there's a promise, and we're not living in the fruit of it in that moment. That's reality. Like, we don't deny it and be like, no, I'm actually totally set free. No, actually, right now, you're in prison. No, I'm not in prison. Well, that just makes you in denial but it still leaves you in prison. Paul's way of getting out of it or, or, or of dealing with it wasn't to deny that he was in prison. It was to deny that prison would get into him. And so he says, I'm going to focus on what God is doing, and I'm not going to let what isn't happening right now or where I am right now dictate that. And so think about this. Just look at the perspective it gives Paul. So because he has that perspective, when he, he and Silas get bound and changed in Acts 16, and they take them to the innermost part of the prison. You guys, we've talked about that before, like the innermost part of the prison. Everything sloped to the middle. That means everything that went on in the prison all made its way to the innermost parts, and that's where they're chained. They're in the worst place you could be, in the worst place that you could be. And it gets late at night. And how many of you guys know that, like, discouragement loves to come and attack you when it feels like you're at your weakest? So late at night, you've been up, it's been a long day, you're exhausted, your mind is starting to get tired, you're physically exhausted, maybe you're hungry, and all of a sudden, here comes that voice of discouragement. And that's probably the easiest time to grab a hold of it, because it's late at night, you feel alone, you feel abandoned, all these kind of things, these thoughts come. What Paul and Silas decide to do in the middle of the night is to sing praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And here's the point. They hadn't read the book of Acts to know that when you do that, God will open the prison doors. They didn't have their manual and go, okay, wait a minute. Oh, here we are. Okay, this is the time when we're in prison. What are we supposed to do? Let's, let's sing and, and praise, and then God will shake the prison, and the gates will open, and we'll walk out of here. They don't have that. What do they have? A genuine love for him that's not based on their circumstance or their surrounding. It says, even if I'm in the middle of the worst place, I'm going to praise him because he's worthy of being praised, because he's better than my circumstances, he's better than my surroundings, and because I'm not going to let external things dictate my inner world. And so what's inside of them comes out rather than what's outside of them coming in. 
You realize like that's, that's, that's the battle that we're in is when Paul says to stand firm. It's not that you're trying to get somewhere. It's that you're standing in that place. Like people are, when we talk about being set free, I think sometimes, this is a side note, but I think sometimes we have this idea that we're waiting for this lightning strike moment where suddenly we'll be free and then we'll never ever have to worry about that thing ever again. And that may happen, but the truth of the matter is, is the minute that you look to God and you say, Father, I just want to be free from this thing. I don't want this in my life ever again. I hate it. Would you just take this desire from me? You're in as free in that moment as you will ever be in your life because your heart says, I, I don't want it. I choose you. You're better. Now it's about guarding your heart so that that thing that you don't want doesn't find a way back in. It's not inside of you. There's nothing wrong with you. Jesus was tempted in every way common to man, yet without sin. That means there was nothing wrong with the fact that that thing out there wanted to find its way in. It was what, the way that he responded to that. And the way he responded to it was what? By choosing something better, which was the word that proceeded from God's mouth. You're as free as you will ever be in that moment. Now the battle is to stay free. That's why every day you wake up, you deny yourself, you take up your cross daily, and you follow Jesus. Because if you're not living selfishly, how many of those things that you hate could actually end up in your life? Just be honest. If you're not living for yourself at the expense of other people's people, what could possibly work its way in? There has to be something in you that desires what you want more than what God wants or what's best for other people in order for that thing to find its way in. Stop waiting for the lightning strike moment and realize you have been set free and it was for freedom that you were set free. Now you just stay in that place of freedom, which means what? I don't make any little compromises that would allow that thing that's out there to get its set way back into here because it has no place in me. There's nothing wrong with me. You're okay. If your eye is single, your whole body's flooded with light. That means if you're looking at Jesus and he's your answer for everything, your whole body's flooded with light. How much of your body is filled with darkness if your whole body's flooded with light? Come on, there's not two things inside of you warring against each other. Your whole body's flooded with light. Will a selfish desire try to raise itself up? Absolutely. Will the enemy try to pull you in a, in a, in a, in a different way? Absolutely. Will there be temptation that comes in front of you? Absolutely. And the way that you respond to that determines whether you stay free or you submit yourselves once again to the bondage of slavery to sin, which is what Paul wrote to the Galatians. He said, you, why would you then, now that you've been set free, why would you now present yourselves as prisoners, as slaves once again to the bondage of sin. In Romans, he says, don't you know that you are a slave to the one that you present yourself as a slave to, whether to disobedience and sin or obedience and righteousness. In other words, you get to choose. It's the, 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 the difference in being born again and not being born again is when you were born again, you didn't have a choice. Your master, what you were slave to, the thing that, that drove you, that was Lord of your life, was selfish desire, selfish ambition, and feeding you at the expense of others. You become born again, a new creation. The spirit of this world is gone. The spirit of God takes up residence inside of you. And now you can still choose to do the wrong thing, but it's at the expense of who you are, not because of who you are. Like, do we get that? Like, before I, I don't want to just move on. Do we understand that? that? Like, just because you're born again, a new creation, doesn't mean you never have to say no again. But your focus isn't the no. It's the yes. And in that yes, there's a million no's. God, we talked about this last week. I'm telling you, listen to me. When you're standing there 
and you're about to get married and your bride is standing at the end of that aisle and you're looking at the end of that aisle and you see your bride, you're about to say no to 3.5 billion women. There's roughly 7 billion people in the world, roughly 51% of them are female, so it's a little better than 3.5 billion women. You're going to say no to every single one of them. And you didn't think one time about the people you were saying no to. All you thought about was that one that you got to say yes to. And in that one yes, there were 3.5 billion no's. But you never stopped and counted the no's because you were just so thrilled about the one yes. That's, what you, that's, that's the best picture of falling in love with Jesus and your eye being single is. You're looking at that one yes, and in that one yes, you're making all these no's, and you're not even thinking about them because you're thinking about your yes. If you get up and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, my eyes have to be on him. How else can I follow him? I have to hear his voice and I have to see him in order to be able to follow him. So if I'm listening to his voice and I'm looking at him, how am I going to get led astray? I'd have to actually put that on hold to turn and give my attention to something else and settle for something less than his best for me. And I can choose to do that as a born-again believer. But it's a choice I have to make at the exception of who I am, not because of who I am because I've now been born again. I'm a new creation. I've got a new master. I've got a new spirit living inside of me. I'm no longer a slave to that thing. I'm a slave to righteousness, which means it's disobedience to righteousness to live any other way. Thank you for that thundering uh, amen. All right. So I, I was just thinking about the difference in these two, and I was thinking, man, what a difference it makes, because John's thinking, I just want to get out of here, and Paul's thinking, he's so good. One person's focused on what Jesus isn't doing. One broken person, according to his own words that he wrote, is focused on what Jesus is doing. I'm thanking God because I'm hearing about what he's doing. Jesus said, the reason John's asking me this question is he's taking his eyes off everything that has happened. So go tell him about what I am doing to take his eyes off what I'm not doing. Paul says, I'm looking at what you are doing, and I'm thanking, and I'm constantly giving praise. And so when I end up in prison, rather than asking Jesus, where are you? I thought you were Lord. I thought you were master. I thought you came to set people free. I'm praising him, and I'm worshiping him because he's worthy, and this doesn't decide his worth. And look what happens, though. The prison doors get opened because of an earthquake that shakes the prison. And this is one thing I love because the perspective that Paul has is what makes him live this way. He sees the one who had the key that could have let him out the whole time he was in there. How, he, he sees the, the bad guy, the jailer, the one who was responsible for probably deciding where he would, they would be kept, for putting them in the worst place, for locking the gate behind them, for turning it with a key, for walking up. He could have let them out anytime he wanted. He's the villain, but he's not the villain to Paul. Because when the gates open, rather than running out and thinking for himself, Paul looks and sees the guy who has been the bad guy in the story, who we would be so busy blaming and hating behind bars, he says, "I listen, I, don't do that. Don't harm yourself. Why? He says, I'm not here so that I can get set free. I'm here so that you can. I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about you. If those gates are open, I'm not going to run away and leave you to kill yourself. I'm going to run to you, and I'm bringing heaven with me. That's the difference in the perspective. 
That's why we have to live with that perspective. Otherwise, we get so focused on ourselves that when, if God was to open a door, we go running through it because of our selfish desire rather than running through it and seeing, wait a minute, there's somebody that needs Jesus. So what does he do? He preaches the gospel to them. And not only him, it says he goes to their house and he preaches it to the whole household. And then he goes back to jail. They say, oh, they're going to set you free. He says, no, no, no. It's not going to happen that way. They're not going to just quietly get me out of here. I want everybody in prison, and I want everybody else to see the deliverance of the Lord. And it says, the very last verse in, in Acts 16 says, and they walked out of the prison, and they went to the household of Lydia. Meaning what? After they preached the gospel in someone else's house and ate and baptized people, they turned around, they went right back to that place. Why? That place has nothing to do with how Paul's doing. Nothing. You think that if you could just get out of that place, you'd be doing okay. I'm telling you, you're doing better than you know, and that place would be transformed if you would stop thinking that's the problem and start putting your eyes on the answer. I promise you. So what got John there? I wrote a few things down. I've got some time. I'll, I'll close up with this stuff. Um, well, let's see. Psalm 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. It's, this is saying, listen, in the middle of everybody listening, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to give testimony of the great things you've done. And everybody else should do the same thing too. And then he gives the testimony. But I was thinking about that. Sometimes if there's a challenge in living in an atmosphere of testimony. Like, what if I must decrease and he must increase is easy to say until it starts to happen? And I find myself in prison and I see this guy being honored. Or, or what if it's easy when we hear a testimony of something that we've experienced as well to celebrate with people? But what if it's a testimony of somebody celebrating something that we haven't experienced yet that we've been asking God for. What comes up in our heart when those testimonies come out reveals whether we actually trust the Lord or not. Because if we trust the Lord, when someone else is testifying of his goodness, we don't see it as coming at our expense. We actually can be happy for them and encourage them in it, even if it's something that we ourselves are contending for or believing for. See, here's the thing. Everybody has no problem celebrating when somebody succeeds in an area that you have no interest in succeeding in. No, I'm serious. Like, if you don't ever care to succeed in that area and someone succeeds, you're like, oh, praise God, that's awesome, bro. Or if they succeed in an area where you've already succeeded. You know, like, I bow hunt. Some of you guys get your meat from the store where they don't have to harm animals, but I, I, I bow hunt. And, and <laughs> when I've shot a deer already, when someone else calls me and tells me they did, I'm stoked for them. When I haven't, <laughs> it's a little more challenging to my heart. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, that's nice. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> then they shoot two. You still haven't shot one. 
What I'm saying is like, if it's something that we're trying to do or that we want to do and someone else succeeds in it, does our heart genuinely respond with gratitude or do we see them getting blessed as coming at our expense? And, 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 and then I thought about like this, like, like so it's easy to, to celebrate with people when they succeed in something I've succeeded at. It's easy to celebrate with people who succeed at something I don't care about succeeding at. But what about when they succeed at something I'm trying to be successful at? If I, this is what I felt like the Lord was saying, and I'm going to go forward and then go backwards to it. That he wants discouragement silence, hope magnified, faith to rise, and joy to be restored. I have this verse written down. Zach actually quoted it during the transition time. When the Lord brought back the captives of Z- ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And I was thinking about how easily we can let disappointment and discouragement be the thing that we focus on. And when we focus on disappointment and discouragement, then even other people's testimony drives us deeper into disappointment and discouragement. Because even when somebody testifies of God doing something amazing, if we're not careful, we let that be another reminder of what he hasn't done for us. And, and, and the longer we keep our focus on discouragement and disappointment and what hasn't happened, the easier it is to stay in that place and the harder it is to actually lift our head and look to what he is doing and what has happened. And this is, so turn in your Bibles, you, you won't hear a whole lot of preaching out of Lamentations, but turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 17 says, My soul has been rejected from peace, and I've forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. How many of you guys realize that a lot of times we find ourselves in a place like this? We feel like we've been rejected from peace. We've forgotten what it's even like to be happy. Like, legitly. We have moments of, like, happiness because of things that happen, but I'm talking about a genuine happiness that we live in and dwell in, a genuine joy that's not based on circumstance, that's not based on anything other than the joy that we have because of knowing who we are and whose we are and what we have in Christ. Like, sometimes, honestly, people forget what it's like to be happy. And when that happens, it's a good sign that this has happened. I've forgotten happiness, so I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. If we don't have hope, we can't have faith. Because faith is the evidence of things hoped for. If we don't believe that things could be better, we can't actually put our faith in the fact that something's better and that something could be better. And we start to think that maybe this is as good as it gets. And then our strength and our joy goes. And I was reading, and, and, and one thing that came up to me this week, and this is why I really, this is the point I wanted to encourage everybody with, was this. You can't find one place in the Bible where God rebukes somebody for thinking that he's capable of doing too much. Like, think about it. People would just make stuff up. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. He looks at her and he says, that's faith. He doesn't rebuke her and be like, kind of pretentious. 
When did I ever tell you if you touched my garment, you'd be healed? What, do you think he just makes stuff up and I'll honor it? He doesn't say that. When, 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 a, when, when someone corrects him with faith, he says to the centurion, he says, I'll go to your house. The centurion says, you don't have to do that. He's telling the Lord what he has to do, what he doesn't have to do. Like, think about this. Jesus says, okay, I'll go to your house. He corrects Jesus. Oh, no, you don't have to do that. I, too, am a man under authority. I understand. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. You just say the word. Jesus looks at him and says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He doesn't rebuke him and say, who do you think you are to tell me what I need to do and what I don't need to do? He never, ever once rebuked people for believing that he was able or capable. Ever. And I feel like he wants you to get your hopes up. I feel like this is a time where he's inviting us into this place of saying, I'm not going to rebuke you for believing I'm capable of doing too much. I'm not going to rebuke you for believing that I'm able. But he did rebuke people many times for not believing or for not thinking that he was capable. The man with the little boy that has a demon comes to him and he says, Sir, if you are able. He says, if you're able. No, if you believe. All things are possible to him that believes. That's Jesus. That's not some weird doctrine. Jesus looked at him and said, if you're able? Like, in other words, like, dude, I'm able. My ability's never been in question. Do you believe? God says, I believe, but, but help my own belief. Like, it's okay to say that to him. He can work with you saying, you know what? The truth is, I believe you're able, or I wouldn't be here asking, but I see what's going on, and it's causing me to doubt. He can work with that. And the disciples, he says, let's go to the other side. They wake him up in the middle of the night panicking. Don't you care that we're drowning? He rebukes their lack of faith. Why? Because like, he didn't say, let's get in the boat, go halfway and drown and die. He said, let's go to the other side. He says, why is it you still have no faith? Over and over again. Listen, in the promised land, the, 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 one, the two spies who dared to believe that God was able to do something enter into the land. An entire generation that doesn't believe gets cut off from entering into the promise because they didn't believe. He never ever looked at somebody who asked him to do something or said he could do something and said, I don't know where you get your ideas about who I am and what I'm able to do, but that's a little overboard, buddy. He sees friends that rip a roof apart. He doesn't say, dude, that's destructive. He doesn't say, come on, what are you guys doing? He's not like, hey, who's going to pay for that? <laughs> who's going to fix that? Like, that could all get sorted out later. The thing he sees is they believe. Amen. And when he saw the faith of the friends, he said to the man, be well. I just honestly, I feel like God wants to deal with two things. One is discouragement and disappointment that is speaking louder than his word. He wants to crush that. And the way he wants to crush that is the same way he crushed it with John by saying, listen to me, quit looking at the one thing I haven't done yet, the one thing you don't understand, and put your eyes on everything that I am doing and that I have done, and let that be your focus, and let that be what you look at and what you hear. And the next thing I think is, is he wants you to get your hopes sky high. Like, quit believing for just, like, a little thing. Like, try to make him rebuke you for believing too much. 
Like literally, get to know his heart for the world. I'm not talking about for yourself, remember? You have not because you ask not. When you ask, you ask with selfish ambition. I'm not talking about, hey, God, give me an airplane, unless he tells you you need an airplane to do what it is that he's called you to do. But I'm saying, like, like look out at the world, realize his heart for humanity, and then start trying to believe him for something bigger than he's capable, able, or desiring to do. Try to make the answer from his mouth be like, that's a little much. You won't do it. You won't do it. Because he's the God who drags Abraham outside of the tent. He's the God that when he makes a promise to Abraham that Abraham can't see, drags him out of the tent and says, listen, when you look up inside that tent, inside that little structure you've made with human hands, all you see is a ceiling about six feet above your head. You can't see it in there. I have to take you out here where I live. Don't try to drag me where you live and make my promise make sense in there. You step out into where I live. Look out at the stars and realize I spoke and those things came into existence. What makes you think that I can't speak and cause a sun to come forth in a womb that you think is dead? Get your hopes up. Don't let discouragement be the thing that dictates what you believe. Let every word that proceeds from his mouth. Find a promise from God that speaks to that thing and then grab a hold of it. So, Father, would you, would you make us like those who dream again? God, would you make us like those who dream again? Who, who step outside of the tent of human reasoning and understanding and step out into the galaxy where you live, God. And look up at the stars and remind ourselves that the same God who spoke every one of those stars into existence spoke to us and said, ask me for things. That the same Jesus, who is the Word and was the Word, who's a perfect sacrifice, looked at the disciples and said, up until now you've asked nothing in my name. But I tell you, from this day forward, whatever you ask in my name, it shall be done to, for you by my Father who's in heaven. Whatever you ask, believing that you have, you'll receive it. What was he saying? He said, whatever you ask in my name. He's not saying tag in Jesus' name on the end of your prayer like a cherry on the Sunday that guarantees you're going to get what you're asking for. No, he's saying when you're walking in covenant and relationship with me, when you're feeling my heart for the situations I bring you into, anything that you ask me birthed in that place, I'll do it. It will be done because it's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, Father, would you make us those who dream again? Would you, would you get our hopes up, Father? Would we put our hope in you? We'd lift our heads. Is there anybody here? Honestly, just raise your hand real quick. If, if you feel like discouragement has been the louder voice in your life for a while, and you feel like you've been listening to the voice of discouragement, come on, it's okay. Listen, don't be ashamed of that. Like, that's why we're here, is so that that stuff gets dealt with, and we can, we can actually like, get set free from that stuff. If you, if you raise your hand, would you just stand up where you are? We're not going to ask you to do anything weird except for to be prayed for. That's it. I promise. The, the laying on of hands is a basic of the faith, according to Paul. Now, church, look around and be the church. And if there's somebody that's standing near you, would you just begin to pray for them? If they want to talk about what it is, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too. Because the thing we're praying for is that hope would be restored, that faith would arise, that joy would be restored. Go ahead, just look around. If you see someone standing and no one praying for them, go find them. And let's just begin to pray over them and believe that, that they would be like those who dream again. The discouragement and disappointment wouldn't be the loudest voice in their lives. Guys, don't let anybody be standing without someone praying for them. Father, we just thank you 
the discouragement and disappointment are not Lord, you are. And God, we won't be like those that sit in a room waiting for you to do the one thing, but we'd be those who put our focus and our attention on you and what you are doing. Father, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. We thank you that hope is restored. God, that faith has a place to land because hope is living and breathing inside of our hearts. God, not a hope like I hope it doesn't rain today, a hope that is a confident expectation of good because you are who you said you are and you do what you said you would do. Father, let that kind of hope arise in our hearts. God, let us believe you for things far beyond what we would have ever been capable before. Let us dream your dreams, God. Let us delight ourselves in you and trust you to give us the desires in our heart. God, let us not feel ashamed or condemned because of what we haven't, God, but let us be excited and be filled with hope because we look forward in expectation of what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen.